Are you the quantum mechanics? Yes, we're the quantum mechanics. We're the paranormal podcast for the believers, the doubters and everyone in between. Now, Ben, last week we did mention that we'd received a couple of messages on Facebook which was relating to our TQM Tolpa project, the, our mission to make Sherlock Holmes turn from a fictional character into a some kind of entity. Yeah, uh, yeah, you did, yes. And we said we glanced at it, but we'd not really dug into it. So this week I dug into the threads and I'm going to... We'll do it at the end as we always talk about the TQM Tolpa stuff at the end, but... I had a wow moment. I literally did the research from the links that they give me and was going, wow, wow. <laughs> they did wow. actually say you this was going to blow your mind. Yeah, yeah, it did. It did. So we'll get onto that later, but it, you know, definitely worth sticking around for because it is quite amazing. That it's very interesting you say wow because you don't know what I'm going to do this week, do you? No, I don't. No idea at all. Well, we will very briefly talk about the wow signal. Oh, I love the wow signal. <laughs> I know. It's not quite everything we're going to speak about because actually the, the wow signal is well covered, but it does come up. I was reading recently that there is a going to be a new British SETI project. Right. Which is all very exciting. And they're going to be doing things slightly different to the American SETI. And I did think, you know, there's not a lot to say about the SETI project. We sort of, I mean, there's a lot to say, but there's not a lot of paranormal yeah. stuff yet. Write that off, why don't you? Yeah, no, sorry. <laughs> There's no brilliant paranormal stories about, about it apart yeah, yeah. from really the, the wow the signal. Wow signal yeah. But then I discovered actually there's another group of people that are looking at something entirely different and they are getting some interesting results. And so this is, so if you've ever looked up at the night sky, you particularly in a place where there isn't much light pollution, there are so many stars. I mean, it's yeah. no. I mean, I'm not telling you anything you don't know here. There are millions of stars. Yeah, I, I remember we. Um, one point we were in Hawaii and we went to the. I can't remember the name of the place, but you're high up. You're you're at such altitude. It's a little bit difficult breathing if you. Well, if you if you me. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, I was going to say. Yeah, you had to had to have a fag. Yeah, but we had a kind of stargazing thing where a guy had a you know proper telescope with it wired up to a computer yeah. and stuff. But even just looking up at the naked eye, you just go. How many stars? That's incredible. Yeah. And so this is where this project and these scientists are looking, is looking back at historical photo plates of the stars and seeing whether there's anything there that shouldn't be there. So they're looking right. for things that come and go. Right. At which would indicate, well, let's have a look at what it might indicate. Yeah. But there's... Just to get us into this, I found this really interesting article on space.com, which is just talking about the general, like, looking up, um, using either telescopes with, you know, uh, uh, telescopes for the eye or um, radio telescopes. Some of the things that we have thought might have been attributable to an alien race or not. So um, quasars, we thought for a while... Um, probably were because they are so strange and unusual. And quasars aren't the one that pulse on and off, are they? That's pulsars. That's pulsars, yeah. What, what's the difference between uh, quasars so, and pulsars? Uh, quasars, they do emit, they have um, radio-emitting quasars. So basically outside of the optical spectrum you get a quasar so you can get... Right. You can receive a radio signal, but you can't see anything, Got basically. You. Right. Then, and, a, yeah. and a pulsar, it's sort of the same, but it's like a lighthouse burst of um, 
uh, energy that you can pick up. We it was very the, in this article it points out that at one point we did think that it was such an unlikely thing to find in the sky that was natural. The uh, the little green men theory was um, proposed. That's great, Ben. It's like sitting sitting opposite Dr. Brian Cox today. <laughs> <laughs> I it's love there. the universe, me. That's, that's, a, that's a very good. Um, that's a very good impression. Thank you very much. Get your keyboard out. <laughs> and, of course, the reason I mentioned the wow signal is because um, fast radio bursts, uh, FRBs, um, they were thought to possibly be something that the wow signal could be, although lots of other people say, no, it couldn't be because it was received for too long and FRBs tend to be much shorter in in time. This project is called, and it's a little bit of a mouthful, oh. The Vanishing and Appearing Sources During a Century of Observations Project. Does that condense down to a good acronym or not? VASCO. No, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> so, it sounds like a pl- place you go to buy cheap groceries on bulk. You're going to VASCO's. <laughs> yeah. Going to VASCO's for a star. Yeah, yeah. So the primary goal of the Vanishing and Appearing Sources During a Century of Observations, I'm going to call it VASCO, project is to search for vanishing and appearing sources as you would imagine (laughs) using existing survey data to find examples of exceptional astrophysical transients that's how they define it so basically what this means is once there was a star now there is a star no more that would have been better title yes (laughs) and it says the implications of finding such objects extend from traditional astrophysics fields to the more exotic searches for evidence of technologically advanced civilizations basically if they find if they find evidence that something has appeared and disappeared there's a good chance it might be something that is explainable but if we can't explain it in the same way as we've been able to find quasars and pulsars etc then perhaps it could be something out there so explainable being i don't know something like it's gone supernova and it's you know you're not you can't see it anymore yeah although that does tend to last more than the time frames we're talking about here supernovas can be observed for many years happening we're talking about things well we will come on to it but things that perhaps come and go within a minute oh okay so right all right yeah that's shorter than oasis's champagne supernova (laughs) (laughs) it it's also not limited to um distant objects it could be sometimes they could be um you know objects that appear in the same uh, sphere as uh, as satellites in our neighborhood as they say in our neighborhood that's the word i was going for and the first time this was really discussed as far as i can tell because i did do a big deep dive through scientific papers and every paper on it recently references the um there's this paper called the vanishing star by a Villaroyal et al. So if you want to have a look it up, it's uh, V-I-L-L-A-R-R-O-E-L. Villaroyal. Villaroyal. Villaroyal, isn't it? Not Which, that one sounds like a Brian Eno and Robert Fripp <laughs> it does. collaboration, doesn't it? <laughs> the team that discovered this, it was listed as having two detections. So one was clearly visible and the other one was less clearly visible. Now, that might not sound like a big deal, but if you think about it, 
you look at a star, usually a star is visible at the same um, sort of brightness. I'm going to use these papers are very, very thick with all kinds of different yeah, don't um, get terms. Too technical. I won't no, be and I started looking them all up and going, actually, all you need to say is like luminosity or brightness. Yeah. So basically, the star, you can predict what the luminosity of a star is going to be. The point about Villaroel's star was that at one moment it was a certain brightness, and then when it was observed again, it was a less bright. There's a lot of different explanations that were given for that, and we'll come on to those. Right. But this is the first time that people scratched their heads. And it was sort of discovered by accident, really. They weren't really, really looking for it. There, there was various reasons why they were looking at data. That, that was sort of a side reason. But that inspired other people to go back through the back catalogue of the thousands, of, well, I would say thousands, it's millions and millions of plates that have been made of stars and um, you know different constellations through time. But let's just say, if it isn't an alien object, let's just talk about the other things that it could be or could have happened. Right. So these are the things that could have happened to that star. So one of the reasons, one of the things that is possible that could have happened is, could it have moved? So some stars do move. They, it is possible that they move, but this particular star, they say no. Don't think it could have moved. And this is this. The reason I'm saying this is not just because it's glib. Could it have moved? They don't think so. When we're looking at objects that are, are targets for thinking they could be alien civilization um, artifacts. You have to consider all these elements. So could it have moved? Well, that comes into, uh, there's all sorts of things into consideration. So probability and maths plays a huge part in how these people are describing whether they believe it could have moved or not. But basically, if you look at the distance away it is, what they think it might be, which is a star, how far it could have moved, is it possible that it could have become so less bright in that short amount of time when it was observed, the speed it would have had to have been moving, right? So they sort of put all those probabilities together and go, that star, no, we don't think it could have moved. And um, I guess, what? Are, uh, maybe you don't know this, but what are the natural reasons? Is it like being drawn into something else's gravitational pull? Or do you know what I mean? I'm just thinking, how does a star move? So, no, so stars do, um, they can move from, it's not just um, gravitational distance. It could be that um, it's being flung from, um, from its birthplace, if you like. So stars, sort of like tennis balls, can move around. Right. And they obviously they have their own subordinate planets and solar systems of their own, but they can move. They can be moving away from Earth in a different rate to others. So if you imagine that it, yeah. when the star was born, it's yeah. sort of yeah. yeah so, but other things that are more mundane actually are: could it be a, a defect in the photoplate? Yeah, and that is something that really must be looked at. And there are various reasons why that might be. So if it is a fault in the in the actual plate then two different plates one should have had the object and one should not have had the object that's the you know that's the obvious thing because they weren't they weren't the same batch they were very different photo plates and the answer is no they were different photo plates that doesn't appear to be um, a problem with the photo plate i love that story i think it was the parks parks observatory in australia where they had an anomalous thing i think we did it when we last covered the wow story they had an anomalous thing and it took them a while to... Yes, yes. <laughs> and they put their microwave oven on to heat up their kind of pasta or whatever and then 
they they realised that's when they got these anomalous readings. Absolutely, it's a real it's a real problem because it's such a sensitive set of equipment that so many things can influence it, and that's, this is why they have to be so careful. So this first paper I was looking at, they end up after they've gone through old and new images, comparing the detection. So detection is did, basically, did you see it? Yeah. Is it there? Is it really there? They find about, uh, so they, they say 1,691 candidates, and then they apply lots of logic to discover, you know, could it, all of those things I was saying, both of those things, is it an error? Is it, uh, yeah. is it possible that it's moved? They got down to about 100, and... Still a lot. It is still a lot. But the problem with it is that um, it, it is still very, very hard to work out from those 100 objects whether there is anything that um, can be said about them which is not, uh, you know, isn't explainable via some um, natural means. And the way they sum this up is basically... The, 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 the paper states, at present, we do not know what these detections represent. Right. We believe there may be a mixed bag of transient phenomena. The object found by Villarreal, etc., is one of the same class and might possibly be a variable object that dropped 4.5 magnitude since its image was looked at long ago. It could also have been some type of transient event, such as a background high redshift supernova. So basically... That is, um, so a redshift, that is one technical term which is worth knowing. As an object flies away from you, it causes a redshift, so it stretches the um, the light out, so the light frequency becomes lower, so it becomes into the infrared spectrum, right. so you get this redshift, so you can tell. It's like Doppler, but for light, if you see what I mean. Yeah, so it's not necessarily the the star has imploded or exploded or whatever happens it's it's something to do with the process it's something to do with the process so if it's moving away in that visible spectrum that is why it, it died in the visible spectrum but is still a visible in the infrared spectrum always more visible in the infrared spectrum Brilliant. but basically that paper says we don't really know what's going on here so this inspired lots of other people to pick up the mantle. Some of the same scientists are involved in these. There's quite a long list of sort of very eminent scientists. When you look at the background of them, professors of research universities from all around the world, this is not just America uh, universities having a look at this. So this one I particularly liked because this one, it says exploring nine simultaneously occurring transients on April the 12th, 1950. So this is very specific. Okay. So all, all, all on the same day? All on the same day. So, And this uh, article was written in 2021, so it's sort of building on that, that previous work I was describing. And it describes how nine point sources appeared within half an hour on a region within 10 arc minutes uh, of a red sensitive photographic plate. So basically, 10 arc minutes, if, you've, if you used to watch Red Dwarf, you'll kind of know what that is. Basically, um, uh, it's a way of measuring distance across a night sky. It's a very, it's a very short amount of space, and you would use a telescope. You would, uh, you would calibrate it in arc minutes to, right. to, to look where you're looking. They're taking these uh, results from the April 1950 Palomar Sky Survey, and if you want to know what that is, it was an astronomical survey that took about 2,000 photographic plates of the night sky. It was conducted at Palomar Observatory, California, and uh, it was completed by the end of 1958. 
all nine sources are absent on both previous and latter photographic images and absent in mon modern surveys with much more sophisticated detectors which go several magnitudes deeper. So this is a real candidate for what could happen because it's nine of them. Nine of them is, is quite bizarre. And in terms of images pre and post that day, is there any indication of, you know, are we talking days before they, they were there or weeks before or years? What do we know? Yeah, it's basically they weren't there, they weren't there, they weren't there. Then they were there in one plate then the next day they're not there. It's literally... Right, so from from one day to the next, yes. they weren't there, were there and disappeared Exactly. Again. Wow. Yes, okay. yes. Oh, I said, and, wow, we've got to stop doing that. <laughs> and what is particularly <laughs> exciting about this, there is a... Um, I was watching one of the scientists who was involved in this paper, and she built upon this. So this is writing for a popular science magazine. She says, actually, when I went on to discover some further plates, there were more transients... And one of them was, uh, it was it coincided with the first weekend of the Washington UFO flyovers. So um, if you don't know what those are, that was in 1952. It was when a rash of strange saucer sightings were reported over the skies of Washington, D.C. And basically the, the American press was full of it. It was a proper, it was what you'd call an original flap. It was a real flap. And, now, in my memory, maybe I'm wrong, but they um, they sent military aircraft as well. So you had, didn't you have this yeah, they scenario did. where there was kind of saucers and air, military aircraft in the sky? Yeah, the that's time? right. Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah. And, but it's really really super interesting that these transients appear at the same time as this so this isn't these nine that i'm talking about this is just the scientists saying yeah. going through those slides that is one of the things she found and these nine i'm curious at the time that they took and i guess processed these plates did they know that they'd got it then or was it only later that these this was found out uh, no, no, it was only when they looked back. So basically, when when it was taken at the time, there was no there was no knowledge that these were there. So bizarre, isn't it? You just yeah. I always feel that that is so odd that they that there's that moment that they've got this amazing thing, but they've got no idea they've actually got it. There must be other examples of that out there. Do you know what I mean? Oh, 100%. In observing the night sky. Yeah. Uh, absolutely there is. Absolutely. Basically, the whole of that paper, I sort of went through it, and there's nothing fantastic I can tell you. One of the things that comes out of it is a possible explanation is that one of the plates had been subject to an unknown type of contamination. Right. The other thing is, is it fast radio bursts, gamma ray bursts? Don't really know because it's 1950 and no one was paying attention to that. Yeah. But it's it's the first thing that caught their eye and they wrote a paper about it just to highlight the fact that there was these nine objects. Well, it would take a brave academic in an academic paper to say or even kind of insinuate heavily that actually this could be alien craft uh, you know we've talked about that in the past it's from a scientific point of view you probably wouldn't go there from a getting future funding point of view you wouldn't go there and being taken seriously as an academic you might not go there absolutely absolutely and i think this is the reason why we are talking about you know a lot of these papers of phrased as there is something interesting going on here and at its most exotic it could be an interstellar alien civilization but it could also just be a scientist sneezing on a, a, a 
on a, a frame, which is completely possible. Well, I'm assuming if it might be, you said one of the reasons might be some contamination on the plates, which says to me they probably can't tell how far away these objects may or may not be. Yeah, oh, that's right. Yes, yes. So we'd actually go into that. There is a little bit of like how you discover how where these objects right, are. Right, because that, that's quite a weird concept, isn't it? It's like, you know, could they, they could literally be in our solar system or they could be in another part of our galaxy. Yeah, that's true. The interesting thing about the 1950s objects, though, is, of course, there are no satellites in the sky. Right. Well, none that we know of, yes. anyway. It predates Sputnik by many years, by eight years. Whether they're close by in our solar system or distant in the galaxy, it still makes them these objects that shouldn't be there, and that, that in itself is strange. Maybe it doesn't matter whether they're close or far. They shouldn't be there. Yeah, that's true. Although it does matter if they're close or far because in the modern times it could be satellites or there's a part of one of these papers that discusses whether it could be asteroid pieces. But as it points out, the trouble with those things is that, well, as we know, if you take a photograph just using your handheld camera, you will take... Uh, basically a, a, a sort of, um, you know, the, the typical shooting star, it yeah. leaves a trail. Yeah. That's what you get because it moves so quickly. You don't just get a single point. Yeah. And this is why they keep referring to these points of detection because it is a single point of, of observation they're looking at rather than a trail. Got you. Those two papers were sort of fascinating and they sort of just look at these, these two specific events and just pass comments and kind of discuss what they may may or may not be and don't come to any conclusions. One that I found which was published um, only recently, this one is from the 8th of January this year. It goes a little bit further and I found this to sort of shed a little bit more light and made me more enthusiastic for actually that we could be finding something out there. It's worth knowing how it it introduces itself because it explains a little bit more. It says that modern surveys exploring the sky have enabled the discovery of many interesting astrophysical transients. So this helped me understand that what it means is there are tens of thousands of flaring stars, supernova, asteroids, and something called um, active galactic nuclei, AGNs, and an increasing number of new subclasses of transients. So it's basically saying that um, this new technology that we're using now, it enables us to detect these new phenomena in the sky. And it says the night sky is actually quite transient. We kind of expect all the stars to just be there. But there's a, we're now understanding there's a lot more objects which can make the night sky very different. So it says, for example, the optical counterpart or the afterglow of a gamma ray burst can last for years. And so it says, up until recently, there were limits on the detection rates of transients because of the wavelengths and depths and uh, our techniques that were were used to to find out what they were. So basically it's saying the instruments we had, they only had like one or two sources of input. What it's saying now is it uses the word um, heterogeneous input. So basically it's like saying now there's devices which take in all sorts of different 
pieces of information. It said, you know, it uses this phrase, um, in the past it was like asking how many dogs watch apples on a full moon. It's hard to extract the data sets from that. What we're doing now is adding more pieces of the puzzle together so we've got more in that data set. We're not just looking at a flat picture of the night sky image that we were from the 1950s. Now you can watch dogs watching apples. It's a very peculiar analogy, isn't it? It's is a really weird analogy, that one. I like it, though. I, yeah, I like it. I, it's sort of, it's haunting. Gets to the core of the problem. <laughs> <laughs> At least we're not barking up the wrong tree. tree. Oh, dear. It now says, like, the Vasco Project is looking for these exotic or rare transients. And this is where it's sort of framing it back, as you were describing. We're not just going crazy and looking for UFOs. We've got a time baseline of about 70 years where we've got all the different data. And very specifically, there's a set of data that does excite them, which is from the US Naval Observatory Catalogue, USNO, that's called. And the direct disadvantages are that um, the data is contaminated by artificial satellites into the 60s, basically. It's the Navy, isn't it? It is, it is. Yeah, <laughs> it's so weird. I mean, maybe there's a good reason for that, but anything kind of slightly UFO related does have some Navy connection at some point. Well, I suppose the stars and the Navy for, for navigation. That's true. There's that a long history. Sense, yeah. You're right. You're right. This paper picks up again on those hundred objects. So it's, it says, right, it acknowledges this project has found a hundred objects. Most of them can only be found in one image. And since we have further investigated these Vasco candidates and found that several images show at least two or three transients, but that doesn't mean that we found an alien civilization. It could be many things, as we know. And that is the... I don't. Is it sad? I don't know if it's sad. Um, but there's some very, very fascinating reasons why there are there are possibilities that could be something else so one of the things that they discovered was that a detonation of an atomic bomb in new mexico in july 1945 left radioactive contaminants um, which were seen as fogged spots or photographic sensitive x-ray film and it was the same company so this was by um this was on kodak um, x-ray papers it was the same company that produced um these uh it's they're called 103 ae i mean we don't need to know that um plates that were used for these observations in the 1950s examples right. and so what they're saying is radioactive contaminants could have been carried by the wind as they were in the x-rays and uh, contaminated these uh, these photographic plates right. so it could be uh, just atomic testing has come in there and it's so fascinating that i didn't realize a side effect of this is that in the 1950s the kodak factory had to produce film canisters that were radioactive contamination proof because it was in the wind right. flying all around the world and if you didn't do that you would take a picture on your camera have it processed and there could be blobs on it because of radioactive interference coming from new mexico it's 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 a it's a miracle we've got photos of the original nuclear tests and film footage isn't it oh it's crazy yeah 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 <laughs> it also points out as you just said there's um there's possible human 
other so- other human sources might be to blame. So small local events in an observatory have been known to give rise to anomalous detections. As you pointed out, where they thought this French laboratory had discovered unusual radio bursts, they were in fact the microwave oven. Oh, there was another microwave. Yeah. It's just Philippe heating up his coffee. <laughs> as long as he's not heating fish. Yeah. I hate people that heat fish in the microwave. That's true. <laughs> Yeah, in a recent search for laser signals from Proxima Centauri, it was carefully demonstrated how extraordinary spectral signals reminiscent of lasers can be produced by the presence uh, of a calibration lamp during the observations. Humidity also leaves traces on a photographic plate, and an observer suffering from hay fever during the springtime in California oh, also produced an anomaly <laughs> on the photographic plate. I'm assuming he sneezed on it. Oh, he sneezed, sneezed upon it. it. Yeah, 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 yeah. He was sneezing out hundred micron size pieces of well nose goo <laughs> um, and pure water droplets that um, basically contaminated a whole load of plates. I love this idea that the whole UFO movement could have been based on someone sneezing accidentally on a plate. <laughs> well, <laughs> it sounds very Douglas Adams, but it really, yeah. it's completely possible. So you can see why it makes it so hard to discover these hundred yeah. uh, objects, what they could be. This other one, um, when we were talking about the asteroids, they go into quite a lot of detail about that, but basically... Could it be an asteroid shower? The evidence at the moment points absolutely to not because of this idea that it leaves trails. Yeah, yeah. That's that's a real big um, piece. Because I'm assuming, like, uh, 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 this is a huge assumption, but I'm assuming we think of photographs like taking it on your phone. It's like a fraction of a second. But I know people who photograph the night sky. Well, I don't know them personally, but I've heard of people who photograph the night sky and you have to... There's all kinds of technical stuff because you have to leave the lens open for so long. You have to kind of account for the movement of the Earth so you don't got this, you know, if you don't want the stars to look like they're streaking across the sky. So um, I'm assuming these plates, it, 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 probably a similar process, especially back then, they open up for a few seconds to get the image. That's right. Well, it, it actually says if you, it, if the burning process um, was to take place to give the impression on one of these plates that it was a stationary sort of object, the burn time would be need, need to be less than a fraction of a millisecond because otherwise you get an elongated streak. Oh, okay, so, so it's actually the other way around with these plates. They, they, they work them very quickly to avoid that. Okay, so it's the opposite of what I was thinking. No, 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 you're right. No, no, the burn would have to be so quick so as not to leave a streak. That's what they're saying. Right. Because the aperture is open. Yeah, oh, I see what you Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, another thing they looked at was um, uh, aeroplane flashes because obviously it's so you can't tell the distance when it's on a, um, a photographic plate. But they say that aeroplane strobes flash fast. Another thing that um, they looked at for the nine transient objects was fireflies. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So there is a there is a possibility that those transient objects were fireflies just flying over at the same time. It's possible. <laughs> Not likely, but it's possible. Wow. And of course I got it wrong. So Sputnik is 1957. So basically what we look what they are very eager to do is to look at these objects before 1957. So those are all the problems with it which is kind of the 
annoying. But at the end of this conclusion, they, they literally end with the words, we believe the mystery of the spontaneous transience is a detective story worthy of the attention of the astronomical community. And that, I think, is probably like, yes, it is. And then there's some other people that jump into it. So let's have another look at an, so let's have a look at another source. Can I just before you do that, um, I, I'm just interested in these the original plates we started off with were the 1950s. Um, and as you said, technology has moved on a lot since then, and they've learned a lot since then. Yeah. I'm curious, and it's probably an impossible question to answer, but I'm curious whether if they're real, you'd think there'd be more reported incidents of these transients now because we are observing the night sky more, I would think, and the technology has moved on from, I would guess, plates to digital. Do you know, do you know what I mean? So, you know, you would think that might give you a clue as to, well, it was just the process they used back then. We don't get them as much now. doesn't mean that there isn't some kind of weirdness going on, but you, you know what I'm saying? I do. I think... The reason for that that I pick up from reading the the full papers is that a lot of amateur astronomers would just blame their equipment or say, "Oh, it's an anomaly. I've picked up something I shouldn't have." And it, it's a bit. It would. I think it would be frowned upon in the community to go look. I found this, and then I didn't find this, and then someone else would look at it and go, "Well, I can't see it either." And they go, "Oh, well, it must be." something that we just can't explain it must be a problem with the the equipment or whatever yeah. but of course the other thing which is quite right is to go oh that's interesting i wonder whether i've discovered a new phenomena in the sky mm. and that's when i guess you start putting people together but the, the thing about this is it's the problem is that everything we're talking about is in the optical sphere rather than the radio sphere so all you've got is either photographic plates to right. look back at or sort of, I guess what you'd find now, like tapes of it to use a modern term. You've got you got moving mm. images of it, and you do get that. But again, it's because of all of these things that I've listed here. It's very easy to say, oh, it could probably be you sneezed on it, or it could be a firefly. I mean, it's crazy to go. That is either nine aircraft from Alpha Centauri, or it's some fireflies. I, I, I'm just seeing the phone call. I'm, I'm sorry, Dr. Penn, you have to give your Nobel Prize back. We found out they were fireflies, not an alien race. How do you know they were fireflies? Well, we interviewed them. Um, but not. I think those papers very much frame it in the sort of, I don't want to lose my job over this yeah, yeah. thing. This paper frames it slightly differently. Some of the same scientists were involved, but it, it felt like they maybe have found their stride a little bit more with this one. This one, again, um, it's talking about the same project, but uh, the title, Our Sky Now and Then Searches for Lost Stars and Impossible Effects as Probes of Advanced Extraterrestrial Civilization." They're laying their stall out a little bit more in the ET yeah, space yeah, in this yeah, one. Yeah. And... This it's it's further referenced in their abstract 
Searches for extraterrestrial intelligence using large survey data often look for possible signatures of astroengineering. We propose searching for physically impossible effects caused by high advanced technology by carrying out a search for disappearing galaxies and Milky Way stars. So this is very much very different to what we were seeing before where they were sort of relying on previous data. Now we're looking at um, galaxies and Milky Way stars. That is their target. And we're looking at new observations as well as older observations. So whole disappearing galaxies, that's quite... That's quite a big thing to be looking yeah. for. Yeah, whether whether it's got any extraterrestrial connection or it's just a purely sign, more scientific one, I'd quite like to know whether whole galaxies could disappear all of a sudden. Well, if that is really their point. Really, is if a whole if we can determine that it is a whole galaxy and then it disappears, what you then have is. You, you are more sure that it's extraterrestrial because uh, you're not, you know, a whole galaxy, you're looking at little bits of it, which could be some of these phenomena we're talking about. It could be an unknown, you know, like an FRB or something, but a new phenomena. But a whole galaxy to disappear is very different and uh, difficult, much more difficult to explain if we can all agree yeah. that it was a galaxy and then it wasn't. Yeah, because it's obviously some kind of phenomena rather than a, a misfunction or anomaly. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So so it does go on to say that there are scientists who are targeting um, basically stars in the Milky Way and uh, extragalactic galaxies. So, um, uh, you know, outside of our own... Galaxies um, far, far away. Galaxies far, far away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it do, they do have to make some assumptions. And I think this is where it is problematic because... It does say, so, efforts to search for indirect signatures of astro-engineering from extraterrestrial civilizations in survey data are currently expanding, and the searches often make use of large data sets. We know that. But it also goes on to say, well, okay, we're going to look for these disappearing phenomena. But it says, assuming that all advanced uh, Kardashev... Uh, type 2 civilizations attempt to build Dyson spheres. So if you don't know, the Kardashev scale, it's um, a Russian gentleman came up with this. It's a method of measuring a civilization's level of technological advancement. This is reading directly uh, off Wikipedia because it's, it's an easier way of describing it, um, based on the amount of energy it's capable of using. And it was proposed in 1964, and a Type 2 civilization directly consumes a star's energy through the use of a Dyson sphere. So you probably know a Dyson sphere is basically you you encompass a star in technology to take all of its energy off. It's like wrapping it in a solar panel, basically, yeah, yeah. which would make it dim uh, or completely disappear. But that, I think, is a huge, huge assumption to make it's the best assumption that we've got about why yeah. these things disappear but to assume that the first thing you do in a type 2 civilization if there indeed is such a thing as a type 2 civilization is to start covering stars in um uh, jackets it, yeah it's such a it's such a human approach to the problem isn't it yeah you know it, i when it comes to those things i always think of the um the cultural writer Marshall McLuhan, who talks about for, as a society, we always look at things. He describes it in the rear view mirror. We all, all, all new innovations. We almost look back at how we can um, frame it or understand it because of what's happened in the past. I'm just thinking of an example. Um, 
vinyl records to CDs. They're both discs. Do you know what I mean? You put them in a player and you play them, you know, whereas Marshall McLuhan's point is, well, actually, where we've got to now, you could just do it digitally rather than have another disc-based product, you know what I mean? Right, right, yeah, yeah. But it's I agree with you on the Dyson Fizz because we covered it before. Sure, it sounds like a good way of trying to get energy um, out of your little solar system, kind of harvesting a star, but it it, it always surprised me. It goes into so much detail about how that's done. It's like, well, there might be a completely different way. They might do it with a little tube that sucks it up at high pressure, do you know what I mean? That's right. Yeah. I mean, I guess the purpose of it is to frame it in a way that we could, as a civilization, understand. Do you know what I mean? Here's a here's a, uh, a theoretical way that it could be done. It makes it more real than saying, well, they used, you know, bendy, squeaky technology to harvest a star. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it points out, you see, that um, in the past... The, we have done an investigation into the amount of mid-infrared radio emission there is in the galaxy, and it turns out there's very little. And the reason for that was because the waste um, energy from a Dyson sphere will be irradiated as mid-infrared. Right. So if you scan the, the 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 skies from mid-infrared and you find loads of it and you can't tell where it's coming from, you're probably looking at an advanced civilization with lots of Dyson spheres, but we haven't found that. We, yeah. we haven't found that at all. What we are now looking at, and I like this, they they, they like quoting their um, their, their sources. Um, they say, they quote from Arthur C. Clarke's third law, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. They say that um, they're looking for hypothetical effects that... Um, are so exotic that they cannot find an explanation for it. So they're they're saying, like, basically, that's why we're looking for whole galaxies that disappear. And um, so one of the things that they said is, well, rather than looking for mid-infrared emissions, why don't we look for um, a a galaxy that rapidly and strongly changes redshift? It starts going in one direction and then moves in another. So that's like that is completely impossible. So if we could find a galaxy that changes its redshift inexplicably and rapidly, then we might have found an alien civilization. And I get that. I think that is a very interesting way yeah. of looking at it. Yeah. But again, when you dig down into it, is it though, or is it just an example? I mean, I don't know, because I'm obviously not one of these astrophysicists, but is it not possible we've just picked up another very exotic galaxy that just does that? I mean, yeah. it is possible, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Which was kind of a point I was trying to make earlier. It's like, and I think they're both exciting. You can leap to the conclusion that, oh my God, it's alien life out there. Or the other one is it's some kind of phenomena that isn't necessarily extraterrestrial in origin, but it's a natural phenomena that we just don't understand. Both of those are intriguing and exciting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the things that they do say here, I love this sentence, I've highlighted it. In addition, a Milky Way star that disappears entirely without an accompanying supernova is interesting as it can indicate the existence of an advanced extra- extraterrestrial civilization with an interest in hiding a star from their enemy. <laughs> now, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, that's true. And it sounds crazy, but maybe, maybe well, that, that is if a that, thing. If that's almost your currency of power and 
progress in your civilization. Yeah. That your, your stars put its jacket on. <laughs> <laughs> but it does also say, and I think this is where we were going, it might, though, also point towards exotic physics like stars disappearing into wormholes. That is possible. And I'm assuming, sorry, I just wanted to clarify this bit earlier, their search for disappearing galaxies, I'm assuming they've not found any of those. or They haven't. This no. is just saying what they're going to be what doing. What they're looking for. It's not like it was sparked by them going, oh my God, a galaxy disappeared. No, no. So what they are doing is they're using the NASA database and it does say due to technical limitations they can only look at 10 million objects at a time Don't from that you. database lightweight and well it's also difficult for them because they have to create their own basically bespoke databases and catalog these things because they they're using a different sort of categorization that nasa do so they do illustrate the problem with like um, having to put these into different things. So one example would be whether, you know, the sort of object it appears to be, the luminosity, whether it is static or not, various variables around its movement, which NASA hadn't been cataloging. They, they'd marked it, but they hadn't categorised it down to that. So they then have to discover which of these different areas of categorization they want to use and this is really important this is another area of possible error because they might be ignoring something completely other and they recognize this but they don't have a lot to go on yeah it's it's so super interesting when you get into that now so far they've done four sample selections so that's 40 million pieces of data they've looked at right which is more than 40 million pieces of data, is 40 million photographs, I should say. Right. And they have got about 148 preliminary objects. They said it is 148, give or take, some of these variables, right? Yeah. But from that entire study, when you go through and pull everything apart and you go, well, that could be this, that could be that there's only one candidate surviving. But that is also exciting because they have tried every which way to prove this one candidate isn't um, perhaps a piece of advanced physics that we don't know about. I say advanced, like natural physics that we know about, a wormhole, all of those things. Philippe microwaving his croissant. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) Philippe. Bloody Philippe. He's always eating. Don't microwave a croissant either. They go floppy and horrible. Yeah. Um, they've even got the coordinates of it. If I knew how to read coordinates for the night sky, I'd be able to tell you what it is. But it's printed in this in this document. It's exciting, but it says, look, it's uncertain because of its faintness. It's a specific, slow um, change in luminosity. And the study suggests that an improved image analysis is needed to determine the confidence of whether it's a real detection. So this is what we think is a star in the night sky that was bright and then it's as if somebody had almost turned the volume down. And That's gone right, dim. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it hasn't disappeared, it's just... No, no, yeah. it's, it's just gone dim, a little bit like you would expect a Dyson sphere. Yeah. Like one of the things that they really looked at was something called a highly variable quasar whose luminosity sometimes falls below the detection limit. So this was noted in a previous paper that some quasars can go dark and then come back to life. We've only just understood 
that that is just a part of the natural world of being a quasar. Now, they don't believe this is a quasar. So what they're saying is what they want is a new high-powered telescope to look at this thing again to to detect whether it's a real detection. And whether it changes again. Yeah, but the problem with that is we're going to have to wait for the technology to exist because we don't have a higher-powered telescope to look at it. They say one will come, but we don't have it yet. So at the moment, it remains this enigmatic mystery. There is one, after all these scientists, 40 million photographs analysed, absolutely ruthlessly rejecting anything that could be natural. There is one, one which could be the result of an alien civilization engineering a star or indeed a whole galaxy because they're not entirely certain what this is because they've, they've all they know is they're pretty sure it's not a quasar and it definitely changes luminosity. Isn't that fascinating? That is incredibly fascinating. And, I, you know... And those odds are interesting because, you know, people would say, oh, well, you've just ended up with one. Sure, there may be an, uh, a more logical explanation they'd not come to. But it sounds like if you – I was thinking while you were telling, talking about it, the original 50s one with the photos that were reviewed afterwards, the the numbers that they kind of identified as strong candidates – were a lot higher than this one, which made me think, well, they've obviously ruled out a lot more than they did the last time they looked at this, and they've still found something that they go, we can't explain. That's right. Well, so those earlier ones, because there is not a lot of data to go on, it's just kind of like, was it? Is it there? Is it not there? And so when when that scientist, I mean, she is very, it's very credible. I think. Um, she, I can't remember which university she's at, but she's like head of the department of astrophysics. When she was talking about how fascinating it is that you get a a transient image on a photo plate the night of the UFO flap mm. in America, that is her saying that is fascinating. It's definitely not her saying, I think it's aliens, but... But she also said, I don't know what it is, but isn't that amazing? And I think what she's trying to draw the the sort of the parallels with is like other branches of science which have kind of said, like, okay, maybe it is worth looking at, um, you know, whether aliens are visiting us. I think she's sort of trying to break the mould with uh, astrophysics and astronomy saying it's okay to look up in the night sky and if you see something weird and it coincides with the UFO flap, don't just throw it away and pretend it didn't exist. Look at it and try and work out what it was. And But it could be a firefly. It could be your mate sneezing on the plate. Or, as they found in this study, there could be one thing there that we have no idea what it is and might point to the to an alien civilization. Now, I totally get the problem with this because as soon as this paper came out, you will find, I mean, I'm not going to reference them here, but of course you will find your usual suspect papers going, oh, we've found alien life millions of miles away. We haven't. Mm-hmm. We've found something which doesn't fit our model of understanding and it is completely feasible that... Uh, a level two intelligence is basically engineering a star. It's possible, absolutely possible. But do we do? Do we know it? No. It's it's like a muamua. We know that that didn't fit any of the constraints that we know about objects that come into our solar system and then leave our solar system. 
And some people did think, well, perhaps that might mean that it was an alien probe or something. It might mean that. It absolutely might mean that. But it might mean that it's just something that we don't understand. And this is the whole frustration with it. It always ends up in, or we haven't got the technology yet, or we need more observations, or perhaps we also need another assumption because at the moment our only assumptions are that if a civilization expands, it starts encasing its stars in Dyson spheres or for some reason moves an entire galaxy uh, and flips it for a reason that we're not really sure of. We just know that they probably have that ability if they wanted it and they're doing it. So I don't know, but it did make me th- it did make me happy that there are people who are looking at this in a different way. Mm. And it's a refreshing change from sort of all of the uh, UAP stuff that we're getting constantly yeah, yeah. coming through the press at the moment, which is basically America's got craft and they're just keeping it secret or somebody's got craft and they're keeping it secret. This feels like a much more cerebral way yeah. of looking at it. And it's much more exciting because there is a, a Vasco project which they uh, are launching for members of the public. So it is possible that if, if you go and Google it, you'll find various places where you can get involved in the research. If you have a little, uh, if you have a telescope and you're mapping the night sky and you find some unusual stuff, to your point earlier, you can send it in and you can uh, work with other people to analyse what it might be. And you might have discovered a new, really exciting piece of physics, or you might have found little green men who just hate stars <laughs> well again i'm interested in what you're saying about the approach because there are a lot of benefits to that approach and you're right it's interesting the media's obsession is with they're here they're on earth they visited they visited earth they are visiting <laughs> earth but we're from here a- we've got a dyson sphere <laughs> but from a scientific point of view there are good reasons why people are skeptical about that in a massive universe how you know the chances they'd end up here what's interesting about this kind of research is saying well no we're not saying they're in our backyard but most scientists and agree that there is a huge chance that there's got to be life somewhere else in the universe framing your research and your study in something that is in a galaxy far away almost stops all those negative things of well they'd never find us and they'd never why are they coming here and all that kind of Mm. stuff we're saying no that's right it's way in the distance but you know we all agree there could be something out there let's look at it it's a good way of doing it it is it is and it's also really fun to i mean i started over the last few nights looking out out of my back garden and kind of go i wonder Am I looking at something that might disappear? Although I did find somebody was, two nights ago, someone was flying a drone high over my house, which I took great exception to. Really? Yeah, yeah, don't really like that. But um, I don't think it was aliens. I think it might be the kid next door. Jeremy Corbell. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) But um, yes, here endeth my lesson on uh, what I discovered about Vasco. But I would urge it is something that you can get involved with. And so if you're interested in it, it is fascinating. Have a look at, if you Google it, you'll see some of the plates that they're showing. And when you actually see the photographs, it's like... That is kind of interesting. Like, how did that happen? When you know the reasons it could happen, it sort of takes away some of the magic. But on first sight, it's a bit 
I think it's quite awe-inspiring and it makes it would make me if I knew anything about telescopes want to get mine out and start having a look around and see if I could find anything like that. Yeah. Well, the universe is marvelous. <laughs> <laughs> um thank you for that. Thank you for um explaining it in really good layman terms because I've got empathy with probably what you've gone through in researching that having waded through more scientific papers. Uh, maybe it's my bare little brain, but it always takes me about eight reads of a paragraph to actually work out what's going on. So well done. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's 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 good to look at the other references around it as well to see what they're talking about. But I think this a lot of this stuff. The reason why you end up with those articles in the Daily Mail is because they don't really properly interrogate those papers to understand mm. the caveats and the. I guess the weight of the research behind it just at first glance yeah oh well we found one candidate that we can't explain any other way they draw the false conclusion that that is alien life but the, the it's more fascinating to know that they have tried every which way they know of disproving it all the best minds and they can't and they need another telescope to try again to disprove it because that's how obviously the best science works try to disprove what you think it might be my god if you get another telescope and they can't disprove it then it becomes super exciting we're closer to finding that alien civilization in the sky yeah definitely fascinating wait well, you've done a lot of work there do you think you can also muster a bit of violin playing? Oh, yeah, yeah, certainly, yeah. I'm um, just passing the violin to Ben. Oh, now. yeah, okay. Right, do you want to warm yeah, yourself up? I'll, I'll do that, I'll do that. It's a bit dusty. I'm sorry, yeah, we haven't used it for a couple of weeks, have we? Okay, right. Go. I'm good. Marvellous. No, you haven't lost it, you haven't lost it. you still got it, Ben. you still got it. So, we did mention last week that we'd received some interesting comments and leads. After we mentioned on the podcast phase experience of trying out our TQM Telp project, uh, so the idea is we've been trying to bring a fictional character of Sherlock Holmes to life. Now, Faye has been our star Tulpomancer. Uh, we've, we've talked about it a bit. She's had some really good results. And I think we've said before it's because she's fully engaged in the process of trying to create a Sherlock Tolpa. Now, if you remember, she had a strange waking dream where she actually had a conversation with Sherlock or a Sherlock to her Sherlock mm, Tolpa. Mm. And he gave her an object and said that it was a test of some sort for me and you, Ben, and it would make sense to one of us at some point. I do remember that. And I've been, yeah, it's a... a a turquoise cross, right? It's a turquoise cross. Now, some of our listeners were intrigued and started doing their own research. Myra, uh, I hope I pronounced that correctly. Uh, I think it's, it's, it's the Irish spelling, but Myra, I think, is right. She started searching, and she didn't come up with a Sherlock connection uh, to the cross, to the turquoise cross, but she did find another fictional detective story. It's a Father Brown mystery called The Blue Cross, which is about a turquoise cross. Oh, fast. that's amazing. I mean, it, it's close. It's not. It, I, I don't think Sherlock himself would uh, say that is proof of any connection. But then regular listener Tony Lovell picked up the mantle, and here's where it gets really weird, Ben. Tony googled Father Brown and Tulpers, 
And the first result that came back just blew him away. The re- first top result was a link titled Homes in Tibet. <laughs> now, remember, this was off yeah. the back of listening to our episode that we did on Tulpamancers, and we talked for a lot of that episode about its roots in Tibetan culture. Yes, yes. And Buddhism. Yes. Tony posted the link uh, in our social media on our Facebook, and I clicked it, and it takes you to a blog by someone called Dennis... Simonatis again. I hope I've Simonatis. I hope I've pronounced that correctly. And the blog is titled Homes in Tibet. I'm going to read some extracts from it because it is really strange. Dennis writes It is well known that after his struggles with Professor Moriarty at Reichenbach Fall, Sherlock Holmes had a two year sabbatical in Tibet. <laughs> Dr. John H. Watson's chronicles the Reichenbach aspects in The Final Problem and Holmes returned to London in The Adventures of the Empty House. So he's basically saying there are references to his travels before. The, um, the blogger says, Here I share information about Holmes, Holmes's Tibetan hiatus, documented not by Dr. Watson, but rather by Happy, H-A-P-I, in the book... So this is chronicled in a book called The Adamantine Sherlock Holmes, The Adventures in Tibet and India. The blogger goes on to outline the basic plot. This is going to blow your mind, Ben. So upon his return from the Far East, Holmes tells Watson, I travelled for two years in Tibet, therefore, and amused myself visiting Lhasa and spending some days with the head lama. I think in the book Lama is actually spelt incorrectly, which is an interesting type. It's spelt like the Peruvian animal rather than... <laughs> but that's probably a typo at the time. Uh, in, in the first of Happy's Chronicles, The Jewel in the Lotus, Holmes is invited to a special lecture by the head Lama. Other guests include Colonel H. Babley Holland Bennett, who's a famed explorer, Cornelio Balkan Demetria, master spy, Horst Hummel, who's a professor of metaphysics. Julio Javes, who's a copyright lawyer. <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> for some reason, yeah. Uh, Rick Weaver, who's a rich American in search of truth. And it says, <laughs> and an orangutan akin to the one imposed the murder in room morgue. But we get to the plot. I mention those names, not just so I can list them. But is each of these people whom he or it claims to be. So the story, enhancing this, are Buddhist beliefs of reality being merely a series of illusions and, wait for it, the Tibetan concept of tulpas. (laughs) Creatures created by acts of imagination. The head lama in the book warns Sherlock, two of the gentlemen here are tulpas. Both are characters of fiction drawn by a great artist and believed by a public that loves myth. Oh. Now, I had no idea that there was any Sherlock Holmes connection with Tibet, let alone creating or a plot line that involves tulpas. I don't think you did either. I had no idea. No idea whatsoever. So that is one hell of a coincidence, isn't it, that... We chose to do a Tulpa project. We could have picked anyone. I think we debated quite a lot. We were like, do we do a kind of 
you know, a rubber duck, I think we talked about, or Doctor Who we've talked yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, we did, yeah. But we plummeted, or well, we chose Sherlock Holmes, unbeknown to both of us, that there is a story that features Sherlock Holmes going to Tibet and solving a case that involves two tulpas. I mean, I guess it's it's... It's inevitable that Sherlock Holmes comes up in lots of different places, but to be so specific about tulpas is... Um, I do find that quite curious. I literally had no idea that that was a connection or was a thing. No. Well, thanks, Tony, for, for sharing that, because, like I said, we would have never have found that ourselves. And, yeah, blew my mind away. Still, we've not had any... I think the... Uh, a blue cross being involved in another fictional detective story that doesn't involve Sherlock. Not sure that cuts the mustard really, but certainly the tulpas in Tibet and Sherlock trying to work out if someone is a tulpa is quite mind blowing. Yeah. I'm always, it's funny how sometimes bits of this show write themselves (laughs) and that is a wonderful example. Yeah. Well, uh, keep it coming. Keep working on the TQM Tulpa project. And thanks. Oh, it's great, isn't it, that when people oh, are getting engaged in social media and on the Patreon programme and sending us stuff, it, it's really interesting. And, uh, you know, uh, we it's great because it leads us to then kind of research and dig out a little bit deeper into the leads that you've given us. So thank you very much, uh, Tony and Moira, for doing that. And... Um, yeah, next week I'm going to be... We're going to stay with a bit of an alien theme, but it's going to be a little bit closer to home than in a distant galaxy. Um, I've got an amazing story on screen memories. That sounds brilliant. Thank you. Just in terms of memories, don't forget to go to patreon.com forward slash Pod. Um, contribute if you can. Every little bit helps, like somebody once said and follow us on socials and give us a five stars if you wouldn't mind well we're both gonna go off have a look at the night sky uh maybe make ourselves a microwave coffee before we do but um we'll see you next week don't be transient objects see you next week bye bye the quantum mechanics.